Welcome to the Theology Mom podcast. Today we are sharing a replay of an interview that Krista did on the Ambassador Forum radio program with Roy Swart. You will hear Krista talk about her journey to co-founding the Center for Biblical Unity, as well as some basic concepts related to the critical social theories. And now, here's Roy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to better understand and defend your faith by thinking biblically, the same way Jesus did it. I have a special guest with me today that I met at a Youth Apologetic Summit in Bend, Oregon earlier this year, Krista Bontrager. Krista is a fourth-generation Bible teacher. She's an author, podcaster, former university professor, and homeschool mom. Krista has a BA in communications from Biola University and an MA in theology and an MA in Bible exposition from Talbot School of Theology. She runs a popular blog called Theology Mom, and along with Monique Dusan, Krista co-founded the Center for Biblical Unity to provide a place for respectful and biblically faithful discussions about racial unity and justice. Krista, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks, Roy. So let's start at the beginning. How did you first get interested and involved in apologetics? Um, I met a gentleman named Kenneth Samples, who used to work with Dr. Walter Martin at the Christian Research Institute back in the 80s and early 90s. And Ken and I and my husband became acquainted. We began attending Ken's class down at Newport Mesa Christian Center back in 1993. Mm. And we struck up a friendship and I heard Ken talk about things I had never heard before. My husband and I had both grown up in conservative Baptist churches. My husband Mm -hmm. grew up in Salem, Oregon, um, at First Baptist there in downtown Salem. We just had great Bible-believing parents and churches, but we had never heard of apologetics. We had never Mm -hmm. heard about giving reasons or answers for our faith. We were Mm -hmm. very intrigued and began to study more of these things. And that became a lifelong journey. Cool. Well, what was apologetics like back then? 1993, that would have been before the internet, before cell phones. (laughs) As I tell my children, I went to graduate school, I went to college before the internet. (laughs) What were the questions that were on people's minds at that time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that back then, you know, we were only in the more embryonic stages of postmodernism. Modernity still was widely the ruling framework at that point. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the big questions were about, does God exist? And how do we know him? How do we know that Jesus is really God? The more Mm -hmm. standard apologetics questions, I think in the last... 10 or so years, the culture has shifted the apologetics conversation to being one of, is God good? 
Yes. Is he even yep. knowable? Yep. And so they're asking different questions now. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. One of the experiences we've had here in the Portland area, when you know we go to events, we talk with kids, we do Q and A's at youth groups, and the pastors will usually come up to us afterwards and say, wow, what you just did, that wasn't even really apologetics. <laughs> and we're like, right, because those aren't the questions that are on the kids' minds. That's not what's in our culture today. I love how you put that. We've moved from is God real to is God good. And just to add to that real briefly, I think that there still is a need to sure. make the sure. case that God yeah. exists and that the God of the Bible is the one true way to access the fathers through Jesus yeah. and that salvation is important. So what I find with young people is they're not as interested in that conversation because they don't know it's a need. It's not yes. a felt need right. for them. Right. That some point that young person has to sift through, well, is your views on race issues or LGBT issues? Sure. How sure. do I know that your view is the correct view? Exactly. And that's where the more classical arguments come in. It's kind of funny in terms of a order of operations, so to speak, in the biblical thinking. It seems like people used to say, is God real? And then once they're like, okay, I think he's real. Now let's get to, is God good? At least our experience has been, they start with, is God good? Is then they go back and say, hey, wait a minute. I think I skipped over the, is God real part? <laughs> Let me just go back sure and fill that in and make sure that I've got a good case for that. And so we've actually seen people be persuaded pretty quickly on the, is God real part? If you've got good arguments, because they've started at Is God Good. So anyway, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, one of the hottest topics in apologetics today is race. And I know that that's been an area of focus and ministry for you these past several years, Krista. What is the Center for Biblical Unity and how did it come about? Yeah, Monique Dusan and I met in the fall of 2017, and she was a missionary in South Africa, and I was living and still am living in Southern California with my husband and my family. And um, we struck up a friendship. We were just talking on Zoom and Facebook Messenger and that sort of thing. And she came home from the mission field in June of 2018. She came to live with my family. She had mission field-induced post-traumatic stress wow, disorder. Wow, wow, wow. And she was attacked on the mission field several times. Oh my goodness. And she needed to come home. She needed a place to live and try to begin a, some kind of healing process. We weren't even sure in the beginning if it was possible to be able to heal from the level of PTSD that she had. Wow. Uh, doctors told us that she would never work again. Wow. There was talk of, you know, should we think about trying to institutionalize her? It was pretty bad. And wow. uh, my husband and I just decided that we would open our home to her and bring her into our family. So we started hanging out and spent a lot of time together, going on a lot of hikes and trying to get to know each other better. We were friends, but we didn't know a lot about each other. <laughs> we didn't know about a lot about each other's backgrounds or families or childhood. So... Uh -huh. 
as we were out walking a lot and hiking, we just started getting to know each other and soon emerged that we had very different views of the world. And Mm. through that unlikely journey, eventually uh, Monique started changing her mind about something. And I started changing my mind about some things. And we started coming together and just seeing Mm. a need for a place where people could have safe and biblically focused and respectful discussions about race and justice in an educational way, in a way of trying to get people interested in the conversation who didn't know they needed the conversation, but to do it in a a fun way, in a relational way, in a family Mm -hmm. environment. So that's really where the Center for Biblical Unity came about. And then just a month or so later, we were in the throes of the pandemic. And then eventually the George Floyd situation happened. We just kind of gained a social media following as a result of the events of George Floyd. It definitely helped to raise our visibility. Wow. What a what a beautiful story. I think that's just so wonderful that it was formed out of this respectful, caring relationship for each other. The way that you described that Two people who both love Jesus, but maybe had different worldviews coming together in a respectful dialogue and finding out that you could both change your mind and, you know, arrive at a better place closer to the truth. Yeah. What a cool role model and example for probably what you're trying to do every day now with people. Yeah. Sometimes we look at our friendship as a microcosm of our hopes and dreams for other people. We had a lot of fights. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna miss words here. Like, you know, it wasn't, you know, a straight road to glory. It was a lot of twists and turns. That's yeah. for sure. But we hung in there with each other, and cool. we knew that our friendship was very important to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whatever these disagreements were, because we were in Christ, we had to find our way through them. And I think that Monique's illness worked to our benefit because Mm. she didn't have anywhere else to go. Her bed was (laughs) at our house. (laughs) We had to work it out. We had to keep talking. (laughs) It's fascinating that you highlighted that aspect because I see that so many times when churches or pastors or denominations or whatever, they disagree and they say, fine, we're all just going to take our ball and go home. And I think we do quit too early. We give up too easily on, you know, finding this common ground of truth because I think so many people are committed to Christ and it's so hard to work through all of these things. And so that's cool. Well, I know one of the ideas in our culture today that's dividing families, it's dividing churches, it's dividing people, even in their own mind, is critical race theory. Uh, How would you describe the way critical race theory presents the problem in the world that needs to be solved and what does critical race theory offer as a solution to those problems? When Monique and I first started making videos about critical race theory in 2019, we couldn't hardly pay people to watch those videos. And and I kept saying, this is the next frontier. You better get ready. And I know a lot of influential people in apologetics. And as I would be engaging with them, I'd say, 
this is the next thing you need to get ready. And they'd be like, oh, no, that's silly. That's, you know, that that'll never last. That's incoherent. Now everybody has heard of this. You know, it's all over the news. It's in everybody's mouth. The first thing people have to understand is that critical race theory is one branch of a larger umbrella of critical theories. Mm. So I I want people to understand that this is actually not a discussion about race. Mm. The critical social theories, and I'm using that word with a plural. So we might think of other social theory, critical social theories. Critical race theory is one of several. Mm. So now we're also seeing the emergence of queer theory. Mm. Many of us are familiar already with feminist theory. Mm. There's the rise of ableist studies, Mm. critical child studies. People working in education may have heard of a gentleman named Pablo Fiere in his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Mm. This is a very influential book that is bringing in the critical social theories into education. So what we need to understand is that Critical race theory, I want people to think of it like a car on a train. Mm. So the engine that's pulling the whole thing is the critical social theories. Mm. That's good. It's an interconnected group of theories that Mm. share certain principles in common. So Mm. each one is its own academic discipline, but there are certain shared beliefs. In critical race theory, you know, if people want a good introductory survey is read a book called Critical Race Theory, an introduction by Delgado and Stefancic. That's like mm-hmm. a nice little paperback college freshman level introduction mm-hmm. to critical race theory. And critical race theorists differ on some of their principles in the first edition of Delgado and Stefancic's book, I think there were maybe like five or six principles. Mm. Now some scholars are up to like 16 principles. But basically what it is, is it's a way of trying to look at the problem of racism, how to recognize it, how to diagnose it, and then proposing certain solutions to it. Mm. And it's done through the lens of seeing people and categorizing people as either those in the privileged or oppressor type of bucket and those who are in the oppressed or, you know, the marginalized. We have different words for them. But what we want to do is redistribute power through reorganizing what are called power structures so that the marginalized or the oppressed are uplifted to power and those who are in the oppressor categories are decentering their power or giving up Mm. their power to the marginalized or the oppressed. That's kind of a very layperson's definition and picture of what's involved in the critical social theories. That's what would be the thread that would hold them together. Critical race theory focuses in particular on race and redistributing power according to racial dynamics. Queer theory would redistribute power according to people who are on the queer spectrum and so on. Okay. One of the things that I hear a lot is as a reason for why the church should accept critical race theory or, or any of the critical social theories for that matter, is that it's just a tool. 
it's just a tool, like you said, for diagnostics, for analysis, for, you know, brainstorming solutions. Do you agree with that? Is it just a tool that we can use, you know, for good? Is that deceptive? Because it absolutely is a tool. I agree with that. The question is, is whether or not it's a neutral tool. Let's use Neil Postman's example in his book, Technopoly, of the stethoscope. The stethoscope is a tool that doctors would use to listen to your heart, listen to your breathing, see what's happening and that sort of thing. Prior to the invention of the stethoscope, they would just ask you diagnostic questions. You know, do you have breathing when you do this? You know, (laughs) the stethoscope came along and is a tool. In that sense, the question is, is how am I using the tool? It can be effective, you know, in the hands of a good doctor or potentially not effective in the hands of a bad doctor or someone who doesn't know how to use the tool. Let's consider another tool as a knife. If I'm a skilled chef in the kitchen, I can use a knife for many good purposes. If I'm a serial killer, I can use that same tool to do great damage. So into these senses, tools can be neutral. The question is, is is critical race theory or any of the critical social theories that kind of a tool? Sure. Because that's what when people come and they say, well, it's just a tool to diagnose a problem. What they want me to subtly believe is that it is a neutral tool Mm. and Mm. that it just depends on who uses it. I disagree with that. I don't think that the critical social theories are a neutral tool because Mm. the framework of what stands under them, I would say at almost every point contradicts the biblical worldview at a fairly foundational level. So let me start with some areas to be positive because I don't want to completely demonize it. And I want to be fair because there might be people who listen to this who are sympathetic to aspects of critical race theory. So let me start by saying a couple of points where I actually agree with the critical race theory framework. And that would be, for example, the idea that race is a social construct. The idea of compartmentalizing or organizing society according to skin color and Mm -hmm. creating a hierarchy where The people at the top or the people that are the most beautiful or the most valued are lighter skinned people with blue eyes and then working our way down the hierarchy to people with the darkest skin and darkest eyes as being the least valuable. I would say no, (laughs) that is a social fiction that we all participate in. And in that sense, yes, race is a social construct. So I would agree with critical race theorists on that point. I can agree with that because I would say all races, all people, all humans, better stated, Mm. have inherent dignity, value, and worth because they are created in the image of God. God does not categorize people according to melanin. God does not sort people out and assign a value according to melanin. Mm. So neither should I. Sure. Um, I should look at people as being individuals in that way and as having inherent dignity, value, and worth. So that's a minor point where I would agree with the critical race theory framework. 
Um, And I could maybe use that to build a little bridge of like, I affirm you in this. I also think that race is a social construct. But when we drill down, you know, quickly into, you know, what the key beliefs are, one of those key beliefs is that, yes, race is a social construct, point of agreement. But then critical race theorists go on to say skin color is an essential part of the human person because of the meaning that society has attached to it. And so this is why you hear critical race theorists say, on the one hand, race is a social construct, but skin color in our society is considered to be an essential part of a person's social identity. So Mm. therefore, the skin color of the person is often seen as being the same as their culture, that person's culture, their beliefs, their values, and even the stereotypes about Mm. that person. And so I know everything I need to know about this person simply by looking at their skin color. And it expresses this sort of tribalistic way of thinking. So if I see a white person, I automatically am supposed to think, oh, they're probably a conservative Republican or an evangelical. (laughs) Or if I see a black person, oh, they must be a Democrat, you know, because they're black. If they're Asian, oh, they must do well in school, you know. So we assign these things and sometimes it can even be like unconscious. We don't even, Mm. we're not even aware of it. Mm. Um. I think that that dividing the world according Mm. to skin color is a profoundly non-biblical idea. Mm. There is no place in scripture where God engages in that project. There's no place in scripture where God says, well, white people, you need to pay attention to your skin color. There are certain sins that you are more susceptible to committing because you are white. Hmm. Black people, you are exempt from these particular fruits of the spirit because you have a right to be angry Hmm. or you don't need to offer your forgiveness as quickly as the white person. Like Hmm. that's not how God deals with us. Hmm. God is impartial. There's no particular sins that afflict us more because of our melanin. Hmm. That is a profoundly unbiblical idea. Hmm. So when we start engaging in discussions and saying all white people are fragile when it comes to talking about race, Hmm. God does not deal with us like that. Hmm. He he doesn't talk that way. God's way of talking about humans is, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Hmm. If you are in Adam, you are far from my covenants. Mm. You are a child of wrath. You are darkened in your understanding and your thinking. I mean, God has a lot to say about those people who are in Adam. Are you in Christ? You are forgiven. You are saved. You are a child of God. You are members of my household. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is how God talks. Mm. And so when we allow our vocabulary and our thinking to be hijacked by a sociological framework that wants to reorganize all of humanity according mm. to skin color, we are engaging in a, a project that is in deep contradiction to mm. scripture. Mm. So I would say 
the the very framework of critical race theory contradicts the framework of the Christian worldview. So it is not a neutral tool that used in the hands of a skilled surgeon on the one hand can be helpful and good. I am a skeptic of that. That explanation is so helpful, Krista. And I think it brings a lot of clarity to critical race theory, you know, how it operates, what its basic foundational assumptions are, and also how it contradicts the Bible. We painted the picture of the background of how the Center for Biblical Unity came about. It came about from some very difficult circumstances in Monique's life and how you were kind of there to care for her and to counsel her and comfort her and also have just a bunch of discussions and walk, kind of doing life together. And out of that, you realized that you disagreed on a lot of things. <laughs> and disagreed <Definitely>. on <laughs> And one of those things, topic of race. As you guys found unity, as you found clarity, and as you found truth, you said, hey, let's you know, share this experience with others. You described some of the basic tenets of critical race theory, and that was very helpful. What I'd like to do is kind of explore why you think so many Christians and churches are swallowing something that in one sense is incoherent. You know, they make a basic assumption that race is just a social construct, but then they kind of contradict themselves and say, and it's so important, it's kind of part of your identity. So not only is it incoherent, it's just flatly, obviously anti-biblical. Yeah, I think that a lot of it comes from the fact that it uses words like justice and Mm -hmm. love and looking at people who are at the margins of society. These are all things that the Bible speaks to. Even the idea of unity. These are themes that are deeply important to Christians, to informed Christians that Mm. have read their Bibles and know about their faith, that we ought to be people of compassion and Mm. caring for the poor and righting injustices. And so when a framework comes along that kind of sort of sounds like Christian-y, you know, and (laughs) I think that part of the problem is that we have higher levels of biblical illiteracy Mm, than we've had in a very long time, combined with a framework that borrows a lot of terminology from Mm. the Christian worldview. So you have young people that have grown up in the church thinking and hearing, God loves everyone. He accepts everyone just the way you are. Mm. And then they hear in the culture, become an ally, affirm all people, affirm Mm their truth. Mm. That sort of sounds similar enough Mm. that it's Mm. easy to get hijacked Mm. and to think that I am actually living out my faith. The faith that I've heard preached in the churches that I've grown up in, I'm living it out and I'm using this framework to disciple me on how to do it. It provides a praxis, Mm. a practical way of living out these Christian ideals of compassion and justice and love. And so I Mm. think that there's a particular vulnerability of Mm. people under the age of 35 or so 
that have grown up in the church, they hear these words and they think, well, I want to be for that. And I do see critical race theory as a gospel competitor. It defines a sin problem. It defines a plan of salvation. It tells you how to be holy. It gives you the right books to read to find truth. I think that was something that I initially struggled with. You know, what's the draw? Like, why would people want this? And from what you just described, they think they're being better Christians. Oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. So they're like, I'm obeying God (laughs) by doing this. I'm loving my neighbor. He loves everyone. He affirms everyone. I affirm everyone. I am a better disciple than you, Roy, who is just a hypocritical, judgmental, pharisaical Christian. I'm exemplifying the real Jesus. Wow. Wow. I like how you emphasize the action orientation of it. It gives something people to do. This generation of young people, they want to make a difference in the world. That's wonderful. Yes. It's just we got to funnel that. We got to disciple that in the right direction. (laughs) Well, let me give you just one example. The culture tells us, all right, how do I be a good social justice person? How do I be an ally? Well, first of all, I read particular books. I get informed. I educate myself. I read these books. Mm -hmm. And then what I do is I inform my parents or people who are older than me, you know, hey, you don't actually really care about justice. You know, you need to Mm -hmm. do these things. Mm -hmm. And if you're really going to obey Jesus, it needs to look like being an ally to advocating for reproductive justice, Mm. which is really a euphemism for abortion. But we recast everything right now as a justice issue. You need to be an ally for marriage equality, which is a euphemism for promoting gay marriage. And so it is what I call the new legalism. And then on the other side, what does God's law say? God's law is Mm. so much simpler and easier and harder at the same time. Like it's easy to read a book. (laughs) Jesus's law says I must forgive my enemy. Hmm. What? No, critical race theory says I must stand in my grievances. I must convince you to come around to my grievances and Mm. you must apologize. I must almost engage in a form of emotional extortion to get you to apologize to me. Whereas Jesus's law says, I forgive this person. I'm Mm. generous with my forgiveness. That Mm. is much harder than standing in my grievances. Sure. God's law says that I don't separate the body of Christ according to race. Mm. I see the world through the lens of if you're my brother and my sister in Christ, no matter what ethnicity or culture or language you speak, there is something foundational that unifies us and that we can Mm. proceed from doing life from that place. Mm. That is a very different ethic or Mm. standard of holiness than Mm. what the culture says is, No, I divide everybody according to oppressed and oppressor categories, Mm. and I treat you accordingly to Mm. what category you are in. Mm. And so the social justice Pharisees Mm. have an entirely new legal code or holiness code for Mm. how we are to live out a holy and good life. 
And in many cases, <laughs> it is very different than the, the commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus right. Christ. Do you think this counterfeit, this sort of copying of language and constructs and ideas and frameworks in the Christian faith, do you think that counterfeiting was intentional? I've got a couple of theories about that. I think that for Christians, we have been conditioned through our church attendance to tune into certain themes. Sure. Like justice, love, compassion, yeah. these sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. So I think it makes us particularly vulnerable when there's a framework that comes along mm. and uses these same words. Mm. I also have wondered, and I think that there are aspects of when I was talking to Monique, my ministry partner, when she was steeped in critical race theory, that I said, you're just borrowing from my worldview. Sure. <laughs> I, I mean, you have an idea about yeah. human equality, yeah. Yeah. that all humans are equal. Yeah. You don't have a rational foundation for right. that, though. Right. I said, right. I do. As a Christian, right. I can tell sure. you, here's why all humans are equal. It's because they're all created in the image of God. I said, what's your rationale? She did not have an answer to that. But she would immediately just intuitively go to Christianity Right. Because she right. had enough church training that right. she said, yeah, that, that, that's, that's why I believe in human dignity. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You cannot <laughs> borrow from the Christian worldview selectively. Right. Now, right. if we're going to talk about justice, I'm down. We could talk right. about justice. Right. But you have to understand justice comes from the throne of God. Mm. And so if we're going to have a conversation about justice, we're going to define it biblically. We're not going to define it by the culture and what the culture is telling me is uh, justice is. So I think that there's a bit of a bait and switch that they just kind of glom onto those ideas and bring it in. Well, it's fascinating how you gave us this list. Get informed. And then once you're informed, inform the people you love. And I'm thinking that would be a great checklist for a Christian to do with the Bible, like read your Bible, <laughs> you know, it is a gospel competitor. Yeah. It's an evangelism strategy. It wow. has a, a holiness code. It has holy books where the authoritative, wow. the authoritative yeah. words are, we don't question them. You know, Ibrahim uh, wow. X. Kendi is our great high priest who tells us right. how to be holy when it right. comes to race. Right. Wow. And what a strategy that has worked for millennia you know, Satan copies God. And if he copies it 99%, that's like the best lie strategy, you know, is to use something that is God and just twist a little piece of it. And that's a strategy that's continued to work across cultures, across generations. Wow. Fascinating, but absolutely terrifying. (laughs) You talked also about biblical illiteracy. You know, some of the things that have made us vulnerable, we don't know our Bibles. And maybe we as the church haven't done a good job serving the poor and being compassionate. Mm -hmm. And now that's left the door open for this counterfeit gospel competition to come in and say, well, if the church isn't going to help people, here's another solution. That was certainly true for Monique. For her, justice and helping the poor 
was in her DNA as a child. Like right. all of her pretend friends when she was little were orphans. Her dream <laughs> was to open wow. an orphanage in Africa. That was her dream. Wow. Of, and so God just put in her DNA a bent and an orientation toward justice, but she right. couldn't have those discussions in the church. Every person she tried to talk to about justice issues in her church, they'd be like, that's leftism, that's liberalism, that has nothing to do with us. And so when she went to Biola, finally she saw people and could have conversations of with Christian people who were oriented toward justice. So what was the framework that they gave her to understand it? It was critical race theory. It was the critical social theories. Her emotions just immediately were magnetized and drawn to that because here was some Christians finally talking about justice. They had a framework. They had all the words. They had all the books. And so she just said, here, finally, this is what I've been looking for. And she put her all into that. She spent two decades in social service serving impoverished communities with that framework in mind. Wow. Wow. I, I, I love how you traced it back to the root cause and the root problem in that scenario you just said. When she went to her church or, you know, Christians around her or whatever, and said, hey, I have this heart compassion for justice. This is a God thing, right? They should have said, absolutely. (laughs) Here's the Bible. This is what God has always been about. And here's the truth, a true structure around how you can serve in that capacity. What a travesty that it was the church that failed her at that time to give her the right you know, way to think about this, the right worldview, the right critical thinking and outlets for her passion. The church is imperfect, but I feel like so many times we're going back and trying to fix things. And maybe it was done out of good intentions, but the church has not been helpful to our young people in teaching them to think accurately and consistently and biblically about these, like you said, these passions in their heart that God has given them. What are some of the practical things that that you guys are doing at the Center for Biblical Unity or in your own family or, you know, Bible studies that you're a part of or whatever? How are you trying to equip, especially young people today, to deal with the biblical illiteracy and this false thinking and worldview? What are some practical things that you see successful? We run virtual book groups through the Center for Biblical Unity. That seems to be something that gets young people engaged. We have many young people sign up for our book groups. If people want to find out more, they can go on our website. We run book groups several times a year and we will read Christian books, but we also read the social justice books and talk about them through the lens of historic Christianity. And where do we agree and where do we disagree? Really helping to disciple our young people, because here's the thing, your child will be discipled one way or the other. Right. Your child will either be discipled by TikTok or right. something like that, or you can step in as a parent and really be that voice to disciple them. And so biggest thing that we do actually is equip parents. 
That's right. really where, where yeah. we go is getting the parents equipped. We run online classes, virtual book groups. We write blogs. We have four podcasts. We work closely with our friends at Women in Apologetics. They do the Discipleship Begins at Home conference every yeah. year to equip and train parents and empower them to disciple their kids. Because big picture, we see that that's really where it has to start is getting parents to understand that they ought to be the primary people, the primary voices in their child's life to disciple them and to really be in that process with them daily. As far as talking to young people directly, we do a lot of youth conferences. Monique last year was on the reality tour. As you said, we did the summit conference there in Bend a few months ago. Uh, We're starting to work with Summit Ministries now and their worldview training. And so young people are very open and able to have this conversation because this is their everyday life. Adults can kind of escape it and insulate themselves from it. Young people don't have that ability. They Mm. know that this is their everyday life and they want Mm. answers. You know, when we do a training on Crash Course on Critical Race Theory, to 16, 17 year olds, they're tracking with us. They're like, yeah, this explains a lot. And they're willing to have the discussion. So that's some of what we do. We have a relationship with Impact 360. We Mm. go there two times a year. It's another worldview program. So we're out there trying to talk to young people and get those discussions going. There's a big homeschool contingency across Oregon, especially in the Portland area. And especially with COVID, the homeschooling has tripled, quadrupled. It's a huge, huge growth in homeschooling. And so when Hillary Morgan Ferrer, I don't know if you guys work with Mama Bear Apologetics, when her book came out a couple of years ago, you'd go to a, a coffee shop where there was Christians and there'd be three or four copies out across the coffee shop of homeschool moms just devouring this Mama Bear Apologetics Because they're like, finally, I felt like I was missing something in discipling my kids, but I didn't know how. One-on-one discipleship, one-on-a-couple-of discipleship. You know, the conferences are great to kick something off, but what we found, our kids are hungry. I love what you said about the book groups where they're like, I want to dig in. I had to read this book at school, and the whole time I was reading it, something felt wrong, but I didn't know what. Can you read the book with me? And show me where these deceptive presuppositions are coming in, these false foundations. Yeah, I think equipping our young people to really think and sort these things out, Christian young people in particular, the more that we can do to marshal resources through the church, through the parents, everything to help them understand the Bible, the better. The really critical piece is that most young people have not actually read the Bible. They've grown up in an age where there's just decontextualized verses that are flashed up on a screen uh, during a sermon, but they actually have not read the Bible. And this biggest problem, in my opinion. What has been the most successful approach to getting young people to actually read the Bible? We work with a ministry called The Next Generation Ministries with my friend Jeremy Bannister. And he has a whole program that he gives away for free to Mm. Christian parents. It's a Bible reading program. 
Jeremy has been a pastor for over 20 years at the same church mm. in New Mexico. He started out as a youth pastor and he, he went to all the youth pastor conferences. He did all the youth pastor typical things and he saw these horrible attrition rates mm-hmm. of youth leaving yep. the faith after they left high school. And he's like, I cannot continue. This is not sustainable where I am pouring myself <laughs> all of these youth and then they're deconstructing. And yes. he was trying different things. He tried apologetics. Then what he started doing was he got all the parents together and he said, I am no longer going to disciple your children. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to train you to disciple your children. I will empower you to disciple your children. And so he's built a program where he equips and trains parents to disciple their own children. The child reads through the entire Bible four times. By the time they finish junior high, they will have read through the entire Bible four times. And then they read it through a few more times in high school. It has stopped the bleeding of the Mm -hmm. attrition rates in his church when he turned this around. And so he said the problem with apologetics that he found was when he was trying to teach the youth apologetics was that they didn't have enough Bible knowledge to even really have an appreciation for the arguments. So he said they were still leaning on my faith. And so they were still like, Mm. kind of wanting me to still answer all their questions. They didn't know how to go in the Bible and look. They didn't have the big picture of what the Bible was even really about. So teaching them these apologetics arguments, he says, I realize that I had the Bible in my background, so I knew where to stick the apologetics arguments. I knew what they were. My students didn't have that. And he said, so even teaching them apologetics in the long run, it wasn't slowing down my attrition rates. When he started this Bible reading plan and he Mm. started having workshops quarterly at his church to equip and train the parents and changing the culture, that's the only thing that I have found from somebody who's working hard in a ministry, has a time-tested model, and Mm. now he's like starting to enter into the second generation I've got him connected with women in apologetics and they're doing the discipleship begins at home conference, but he makes his blueprint for parents and his Bible reading plan, according to ages, uh, free on his website. And I believe his website is the next, it's either next gen or next generation, but you can find it if you see Jeremy Bannister. That's really the only thing that I've seen work is getting young people to start reading their Bibles. Because I can tell when I'm mm. talking to a young person who's actually read the Bible, wow. yeah, there is a world of difference between that right. young person and a person who's just grown up in a Christian home. Well, Krista, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much. I've been jotting notes just for myself down like crazy. There's so many helpful resources and so much great, rich information. Uh, People can find this if they just go to Center for Biblical Unity. Is that your website? Yeah, centerforbiblicalunity.com. And then all of these awesome resources from there. Thank you again so much. This has been fascinating and so helpful. I'm sure we will be crossing paths in the future. It's my pleasure, Roy. Thanks for having me. Now, how about you? Have you been deceived by the counterfeit of CRT? 
Have you failed to recognize it for what it is, which is a competing gospel to the story of Jesus Christ? I want to encourage you to think deeply, to demand consistency and coherency in your mind and how you think about the world. In short, I want you to think biblically about not only CRT, but everything. You can visit our website at theambassadorsforum.com to check out some of our helpful resources and see some of the local events that we're doing to help equip Christians to better understand and defend their faith. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.